In 165 BC, a king from the north named Antiochus Epiphanes attempted a genocide of the nation of Israel. And he almost succeeded, but a man named Matthias and his son Judas Maccabees led a revolt. They put down that genocide and they cleansed the temple of the defilement of the Gentiles. They lit the lights in the temple and they didn't have enough oil to keep the lamps lit. And so they prayed and God supernaturally provided the oil that they needed to continue to keep those lights lit. And they cleansed the temple. They cleansed the holy place of God. This occurred in the month of Kislev in the Hebrew calendar, approximately our month of December. And as a result, and in remembrance of what God had done, they instituted a feast called the Feast of Lights, and it's better known to us today as Hanukkah. Daniel chapter 8 prophesies that event. Daniel 8 gives us specific details about that man and what he would do to the nation of Israel. And this would be extremely important for Daniel, for his friends, and for the nation. That God is letting them know what he's going to do. We've learned this, that this is one of the benefits of being a part of God's people, is that God tells us what he's going to do. So God was letting the nation, he was letting Daniel know what he was going to do so that when it would uh, occur, they would not be surprised. And so that they would know that it would not last forever and that God is sovereign over kings and over nations and he's sovereign over every detail of history. But there's a greater significance to this chapter. There is what we would call a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. There was a historical, it's history to us, it was future for them. There's a historical fulfillment, but there's also an eschatological fulfillment. That this historical figure, Antiochus Epiphanes, who would come 200 years after Daniel, actually points to a bigger individual that scripture calls Antichrist and who will usher in the tribulation prior to the final appearing of Christ. In other words, Antiochus Epiphanes is a historical prefiguring of an eschatological person that we know as the beast or antichrist. See, I love what God does. Rather than trying to explain someone who will come in the future, he takes a, a historical person and uses that person to give us a description of a person who will come in the final days. Now, with all that having been said, please remember, as I am doing my best to remember as we study this, that Daniel 8, as it was with Daniel 7 and Daniel chapter 2, it's not given so that we can create these nice little charts. It's given so that we could have comfort in knowing that God is sovereign over history. And God will bring it to its end. And so, uh, another way of saying it, it's not given so that you can create a timeline. You start getting caught up on these dates. In fact, in the 2,300 days, it's going to be mentioned here, there was all kinds of goofiness that came out of those 2,300 days in people's interpretation of them. We don't want to get caught up in timelines. This is intended to deepen our reverence and trust in the God of all history. So with that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father... As we come before your word, we do so humbly this morning. God, I know, as I've been studying this week, feeling much like Daniel in 
place of despair. How do you explain all this? And God, with that in mind, we are desperately in need of you and your spirit to help us to keep the main things the main things. God, I pray as a result of our understanding of Daniel chapter 8, we would deepen our reverence and our trust in you. And God, if there is anybody here today that doesn't know you, I pray that they would see that you're the God of all creation, the God who is sovereign over all history. You are perfect in your prophecies in the past, and we can trust you with the future. Open their eyes to who you are, who they are. God, our prayer is that we would always glorify Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, look with me at verses 1 through 4, Daniel chapter 8. It says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously, meaning this is attached to the previous vision in chapter 8. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. And then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one coming up last. And I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. We should, as we read this, knowing what we've learned in chapter 2 and chapter 7, the ram should be quickly recognizable. His two horns, one is longer than the other. Uh, it was represented with the divided kingdom and the vision of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had with the arms and the breast of silver. And you'll remember also in the Daniel chapter 7 in the vision there that Daniel had of the bear that was raised up on one side. We know this very clearly to be the kingdom of Medo-Persia. In fact, if there were any doubt, God tells us in verse 21 who this is, that this is the Medo-Persian kingdom. And they are budding out to the west and the north and the south, that they extended their might over the entire Middle East. And it even says here, he did as he pleased and magnified himself. That this will be a common theme as we look at these kings and these kingdoms. That they lose their fear of God. They lose any sense of the sovereignty of God. That it was God who gave them their greatness. And what does God do? God humbles them. He brings them down. So look with me at verses 5 through 7. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram and he was enraged at him and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Again, this goat is recognizable very clearly in Daniel chapter 7. It's the, the leopard that had wings. It's got strength and it moves out very quickly and that is Greece. In fact, we again get interpretation in verse 21. God tells us this is Greece and that horn is the first king. It's Alexander the Great. 
And in verse 8, it tells us that the, the goat magnified himself. It says, the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. So the goat magnifies himself. He, he rises to a place of great power. And that's exactly what Alexander the Great did. At the age of 22, he had virtually come to a place where he was ruler over the vast majority of the world. And as we know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And a guy 22 years old who rules the world, you can quickly see how that guy would probably become incredibly powerful or prideful. And that's exactly what he does. He magnifies himself. And God does what? God brings him down. God judges him. As I was saying this, it's a good reminder. Can God still do this today? Can God take a Gentile nation that loses its fear of God and loses its sense of the sovereignty of God and realizes that they have nothing apart from God and they magnify themselves and they, they really distance themselves from the truth of God and God does what? God humbles them and God brings them low. That's exactly what's happening here. And Alexander the Great dies at the age of 33. But then look in the latter portion of verse 8. It says, the large horn was broken up, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the, toward the four winds of heaven. And in verse 22, again, we get an interpretation. The four horns are four kingdoms. You know, Greece, after Alexander the Great dies, it is divided up between four generals and four kingdoms. There was Asia Minor and Macedonia, and there were rulers over those regions and those kingdoms they're not as important the other two are most important for Israel in the north in Syria you had uh, Seleucus and you have the Seleucid kings and in the south in, in Egypt you have Ptolemy and the Ptolemaic rulers probably the most famous of them being Cleopatra but these two kingdoms in the north in Syria and then in the south in Egypt the Seleucids and the Ptolemies were constantly at war and they were at war over a particular piece of ground known as Israel, this place that God refers to as the beautiful land, because this piece of land was incredibly critical. You've heard me say this before, but real estate, the key piece is always what? Location, location, location. Everybody wanted that piece of land because whoever controlled that controlled the, the avenue to the Mediterranean, and they were also seeking to bolster themselves against a growing kingdom in the West known as Rome. So they're fighting over this one critical piece of ground. But listen, look at what it says in, in verse 9. It says, Out of one of them, so out of one of these kingdoms, came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. In, in 171 BC, the eighth of the Seleucid kings, a man by the name of Antiochus IV, he actually gave himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes meaning uh, the glorious one, so the appearing of the glorious one. You can see his great humility. Uh, but he conquered Israel, and he sees Rome coming against him, and his desire was to consolidate his conquered peoples. He wanted all of them to become Greeks he wanted to Hellenize all of his kingdom. And what he did was, in Israel, he made it illegal to be a Jew. He made it illegal to circumcise. He made it illegal to have the law, to have the Torah. And what he did, because whenever you want to change a nation, what do you do? You start with early childhood development. You get in the schools. And so he went after the young Jewish boys. And his goal was to get God and 
Abraham out of their minds and let's see if we can't put Zeus in his place. And so they're going to re-educate these boys. They had gymnasiums. They made these Jewish boys uh, compete in the nude like the Greeks would do. So they're trying to change the culture. They're trying to change a nation. And he removed the high priest of Israel, the, the rightful high priest. He put his own high priest in his, in his place, one that would conform to his Hellenization uh, goals. And at a certain point, it was rumored that he was killed uh, by the Romans in Egypt. And as you can imagine, as word began to come to Israel that Antiochus had died at the hands of the Romans, they're excited, they're pumped up. But then all of a sudden, Antiochus shows back up, and he is mad. And he kills, at least we know, 40,000 Jews. He puts another 10,000 into slavery. And he took a statue of Zeus, and he put it in the holy place of the temple, more than this, he, he sacrificed a pig on the altar and took the entrails of that pig and splattered it all over the temple. It's what we would call the abomination of desolation. And this, all of those things are predicted right here. Look with me, verse 10. It says it grew up, meaning this, this small horn, it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host of some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. A star in scripture is most often used to refer to faithful believers. The picture here is that this man persecuted the faithful of Israel. Not only did he persecute them, he killed them. And then you see in verse 11, it magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host and it removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. So he makes himself to be God. He removes sacrifice and the place of God's presence is cast down. That is exactly what he did. That is what history tells us that Antiochus did. And then in verse 12, and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. You see there at the beginning of verse 12, account of transgression. I take that to mean on the account of the transgression of Israel. See, wherever Israel went, wherever you put God's people, they flourished. didn't matter where you put them. Even Daniel, when we see him in captivity with the Babylonians, what happens? He flourished. When, when we finish Genesis and they're in Egypt, guess what happens to them in Egypt? They flourished. Everywhere you put God's people, they always flourished. But here was the problem. When they were brought to a place of flourishing and blessing, it did not deepen their commitment to God. It brought them, in fact, to a place of complacency and disobedience. Can that ever be true of us? That the blessings that God pours into our lives does not lead us to a place of greater commitment and obedience, but in fact leads us to a place of complacency and disobedience. And so what did God do? With the nation, when this occurred, what God would do is he would use other nations to judge his people, to shake them, to discipline them, and bring them and draw them back to a place of deeper commitment to God. And so God is drawing his people back. He's using pain to draw them back to himself. And then in verses 13 through 14, look with me there. It says, then I heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one said uh, to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be Properly restored. 
God says this is only going to go on for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, if you go back from 165 B.C. when the Maccabees put down the sons of Greece and cleansed the temple, if you start there and go back 2,300 evenings and mornings, you go back to 171, which is exactly when the persecution of Epiphanes began. You know what God is doing? I love this. God is showing off. He's telling them 200 years in advance exactly what's going to happen and exactly how long it will occur. He's also letting the people of Israel know there's a limit to what you can do to my people. When I say enough is enough, enough is enough, and I put it down. Well, what's interesting, you know how this ended. Antiochus Epiphanes he made them bow to Zeus. So he took a statue of Zeus. He took it to all the villages, and he forced those people, in particular the priests, to bow down to that statue of Zeus. And he went to a village uh, named Modin and to a, a Jewish priest, an old priest by the name of Matthias. And he forced him, or he asked him to bow. And Matthias was an old man. He was an old priest, and he would not bow. This is a faithful Jew, a faithful priest. And a Greek soldier took out his sword and said, if you will not bow, I'm going to start killing people. And there was a young guy, a young priest, who stepped in and said, I will bow. There's no need for bloodshed. And so he said, I'll, I'll compromise in the place of this old man so that blood will not be shed. And guess what Matthias did? He pulled out his sword and he killed that young priest and said, not on my watch. We are not bowing. And evidently he was so pumped up with adrenaline that in his backswing, he hit the Greek soldier and killed him and war broke out, guerrilla warfare broke out between the Greeks and the Jewish people in all these villages. What started in Modin spread out over all of Israel. And guess what happened? Israel pushed them out. Israel won. And they went to the temple. And Judas Maccabees, Matthias' son, Matthias died. Judas Maccabees led the people to cleanse the temple. And that is when they lit those candles. And they prayed that God would provide the oil they needed. And God provided and they set up the Feast of Lice, which became Hanukkah. That is the God we serve, who knows the end at the beginning, knows every detail and is sovereign over every aspect of human history. What was God saying to Daniel and this nation? He was letting them know that judgment is coming. And it's going to be bad, but I'm sovereign over every aspect of it. I know every detail before it begins, and I will deliver you. That God is reminding this nation that I have made promises to you that I will fulfill, and persecution will not go on forever. When I say it's done, it's done. But what we learn is that in verses 15 and following, what we find out, what Daniel, in fact, learned is that it's this was not just about Antiochus Epiphanes. This, is, this historical person, as I said earlier, points us to an eschatological individual. So look with me at verses 15 through 19. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing. When he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand upright. 
He said, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. You see that phrase over and over again, time of the end. It occurs in, in verse 17, it occurs in verse 19, it occurs in verse 26. And basically what God is saying is this doesn't just refer to some Greek king. This is a, a, about a person who precedes the end of all human history. And what we see, what we're going to see in beginning in verse 23 is this is going to picture for us Antichrist. Now make no mistake about it, we're still talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. But that person prefigures an individual that we will come to know as the beast or Antichrist. So look with me at verse 23. In the latter period of the rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. I love it. When, when the transgressions have run their course. In other words, when God says enough is enough, a king will arise. So we're still talking, remember, we're still talking about, make no mistake, it's Antiochus Epiphanes, but it's prefiguring somebody else. In fact, if you look at what we're going to see moving forward, if you take this and you overlay 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I believe Paul uses this text right here to tell us that this person is Antichrist. He basically picks up Daniel chapter 8 and he says this is Antichrist. He follows almost point by point from Daniel chapter 8. That's why this is so important because it's giving us a better understanding of this person who will come. But then look in verse 24. His power will be mighty but not by his own power and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. It says his power will not be his own. That there's someone behind him who gives him power. In Revelation, it says that the dragon gives the authority to the beast. Revelation 13, 4. So this man will be satanic. That Satan is behind him. And he'll be marked by destruction. Now Paul tells us that he'll begin his rule by saying peace and safety. And he'll bring about peace like never before. But then suddenly destruction will come. And it says he destroys mighty men and holy people, meaning he hates the faithful people of God. He kills them. As we're going to see in Revelation, they're going to run for the hills and they're going to hide in the wilderness. In verse 25, it says, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he'll magnify himself in his heart and he'll destroy many while they're at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. That this is a man who is marked by deceit and lying. Truth in his mind is secondary to success. He will do whatever it takes to win. He is a liar because behind him is the father of all lies, Satan himself. He puts himself in the place of God. It says here he even opposes the, princes of, the prince of princes, meaning he opposes Christ, or as we would say, he is antichrist. And then it says he is broken without human agency. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, he died of depression after a defeat. With Antichrist, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, that the Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth and by the appear appearance of his coming. Meaning, you know how Antichrist, the beast, is going to die? Christ is just going to show up and breathe, and he's done. In fact, in in Revelation 19, it says Christ destroys him and casts him and the false prophet in the lake of fire. Then look with me at verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings, which has been told, is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. So God lets him know. You remember in John 14, 
In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. If this wasn't true, I'd tell you. And right here, he's letting Daniel know. This is true. You mark it down. You take it to the bank. This is how it's going to end. Now, what do we see about Antichrist? We see he's a person of self-exaltation. He's going to make himself out to be God. We see that he's destructive, and he's destructive of others. He is deceitful. He is a liar. Satan himself is behind him. He is opposed to the ordinances of God and sacrifice, and he puts himself in the place of God, and he regards other people as people who are supposed to pay homage to him. So when you begin to put this together, that's what we're seeing with Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8. We're going to add on with Daniel chapter 9 next week. But you've got Babylon, you've got Medo-Persia, you've got Greece, you have Rome. And then coming out of Rome, what we've seen is you've got some kind of ten-nation power with one man, Antichrist, who will take control. And now we've added to that a pretty good description of what Antichrist will look, at, look like. But then look in verse 27. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days, and then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded by the vision, and there was none to explain it. I mean, he's astounded. Can you imagine Daniel trying to put this all together in his mind? Greece is in existence, but it's, it's, it's no real nation at all. It's just a group of farmers. Alexander the Great's not even born. His father, Philip of Macedon, I don't believe he's even born. And he's been given this vision of what will occur 200 years in the future, and he's astounded by it, and it's difficult for him to even comprehend. And beyond that, what he does know makes him sick because what does he learn here? We saw it last week too. What does he learn? That God is telling him there's going to be severe persecution. Remember, Daniel's probably hoping that the exile is going to be over in the very near future and they're going to be able to go back to Jerusalem. It's all going to be fun. You know what God's saying to him? It's going to get worse before it gets better. There's going to be suffering and persecution the likes of which you can't even begin to comprehend. And so what, is, what happens to him? It makes him sick. It should make us sick. Uh, this past week, I mentioned last week, Eric Liddell, and so our family last weekend, over the long weekend, we had a chance to watch um, not Chariots of Fire, which is a great movie, but wanted to see kind of the latter end of Eric Liddell's life. There's a movie out there called On Eagle's Wings, and it shows kind of what happened to him in the internment camp and what he experienced, what those believers experienced. And I'm going to tell you, we were watching that. It made us sick. To see what those believers endured, what they went through. I mean, there was parts of it we couldn't even watch. I had to fast forward through. I mean, we were kind of thinking, why are we watching this? Man, when God tells us what's it going to be like, it should make us sick to think about what's going to occur. But you know what I love here? What did he do? He carried on. Even though he knew what was coming, even though he knew suffering and persecution was out there, guess what he did? He just got up and went to work. I've got to be faithful today. My knowledge of the future doesn't cause me to just crawl up into a, curl up into a corner and just pray it all comes to an end. No, it transforms me today. It deepens my awe and trust in God and I move out and I live a transformed life in the midst of a fallen world. That's what Daniel did. 
Let me just give you a few lessons here that stuck out to me as I studied the Daniel chapter eight. Number one, it's a good reminder that we're to be bold and faithful even in the midst of the apparent chaos of history. Be bold and faithful even in the midst of the apparent chaos of history. When God gives us information about the future, the goal is always to modify our present. So God gives this information to Daniel, not so that he become arrogant and full of knowledge. He'd go, go out and write a book about the end times and make a lot of money. That was not the intended purpose. Daniel was intended to go back and to be faithful in the midst of his generation and to be bold for God. In fact, that's exactly what he does. He became very bold in his faithfulness. In fact, this chapter corresponds with the vision, or not the vision, but you'll remember with Belshazzar, they're having a party, and they brought the sacred things of God into the party, and he sees the handwriting on the wall. You remember? Meeny, meeny, tackle, you farsed, and, and, and he doesn't know what it means. And the queen, she says, I, I remember this guy, Daniel, he knows how to do this stuff. Call him in. They called Daniel in. And you know what, Daniel? He looks right at this king. And you know what he tells him? He says, I'll tell you what it means. It means you've been weighed and you've been found wanting. It means you're going to die. And God's going to give your kingdom to somebody else. Is that not bold? That's bold. That's as bold as it gets. Now, how could Daniel be so bold? He was able to be bold in his faithfulness because God had let him know, I'm sovereign over history. No matter how bad it gets, I have not let go of the reins of history. Don't trust appearances. Don't trust the appearances of history. Don't trust these people who are in positions of so-called power. I'm the one who's behind them and I am in control. God's sovereign hand always rests upon history even in the midst of the times that look to us as though they are evil and chaotic. Daniel was faithful and bold and he never freaked out, never lost his head because Daniel knew no matter how bad it gets, God's in control, persecution will not last forever and God will put down his enemies. Daniel knew all I really have to do is be faithful. Is that not a good word for us today? To be reminded today no matter how bad, no matter how chaotic things appear today, don't trust appearances. God has not let go of the reins of human history. He is still in control. And he's sovereign over every detail. He will put down his enemies. And Christ will win. And those who are faithful to him will rule and reign with him. So we're bold and courageous, even in the midst of the apparent chaos of human history. Secondly, what stuck out to me here, and we're going to talk more about this as we move into Revelation, we need to be more aware of the dark realities of the powers of evil in this world. In verse 16, the first time an angel is named. First time an angel is named in Scripture occurs right here. It's Gabriel. Gabriel is the same angel who, in the future, will appear to a young teenage girl in the city of Nazareth and tell her that she will give birth to the Messiah. Later on, you're gonna see another angel named Michael. Angels and demons are a large part of our Bible. They, they have a prominent place in the books of Job. As we're seeing here, they have a prominent place in Daniel. Um, and as we get into Revelation, we're gonna see angels a lot. In fact, in Daniel, you see a demon over the, over the country of Persia, a demon who rises up to persecute. But the picture is this, that behind, 
behind all these physical nations and rulers is a celestial and cosmic and spiritual battle that's being waged. Just as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And I think when we start talking about this, even for me, when I start talking about angels and demons, my fear is, well, maybe we, maybe we get to a place where we start seeing a demon behind every bush. Folks, what if there is? Is that not all bad? I think one of the great taxes of Satanists is to lull us to sleep to the reality of the spiritual warfare that's taking place all around us. And I believe with all my heart that if God could pull back our blinders this morning for us to see the spiritual and celestial battle that's taking place in this room right now, we would hit our knees and we would pray like never before. But rest assured, just because you can't see it with your eyes doesn't mean that it's no less real. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle. Not against flesh and blood, but against the world forces of evil and wickedness in the heavenly places. We stay through Revelation. We should become more acutely aware of this. Thirdly and finally, God's word, his prophecies and promises never fail. God's word, his prophecies, his promises never fail. Babylon, did God prophesy that Babylon would rise and fall? Yes, he did. Did God prophesy that there would be a kingdom come after them, the Medo-Persian kingdom, that would rise and fall? Did he prophesy that? Yeah, did. Is that what happened? That's exactly what happened. Did God prophesy that there would be another kingdom called Greece that would rise up after them that would be strong and be far-reaching? Yes, he did. Did he prophesy that they'd have a first king who would be a great king? Yes, he did. Is that what happened? Yes, it is. Did he prophesy that after that king, the kingdom would be divided into four kingdoms? Yes, he did. Did he prophesy that there would be a king in one of those kingdoms who would be raised up and act out a genocide against the nation of Israel, but one day be put down? Yes, he did. Did God prophesy that that persecution would only last for 2,300 days? Yes, he did. God has never failed in his prophecies or promises. He's batting a thousand. Has God made promises about the future? About what he will do in the future? Yes, he has. And there might be parts of the future where our interpretations might differ But as believers, I think we can all unite around the fact that God has said and promised that this one who is Jesus, who is God, who came and lived a perfectly sinless life and died on a cross for our sins and was placed in a tomb and rose from the grave and ascended to the Father, God has promised regardless of how you interpret all the end times, regardless of your all-millennial, premillennial, post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, whatever you are, we can all agree on this. He is coming back to judge the quick and the dead. And if he was right on those past prophecies, you can rest assured he's right on this one too. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, my prayer is that this would shake you to the core. This is a God who knows all history. He's been right on every occasion. You can rest assured he's right on what he said is coming. You know, Paul said in Acts 
17.30, that therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, to all people everywhere, to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man. That day's coming. And listen, it would be a shame for you to have a working knowledge of Daniel 2, 7, and 8 and go to hell because you never bent the knee to Jesus Christ. He's never missed. He won't miss on that one. And then for us as believers, Isaiah 48, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The more I study this book, the more I stand in awe of God. And as always, there's a hymn. God never fails. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have told us what is to come. You have not left us in the dark so that there is no one here who can claim ignorance. And God, my prayer throughout this week has been that if there is anyone who has not bent the knee to King Jesus, that as a result of having studied these things, they would know that God's word is sure. His prophecies, his promises are fixed. 
And there is a day coming. And I pray that this truth would sober them today so that they would run to the mighty fortress of our God. That they would bend the knee to Christ and know his freedom, know his forgiveness, and know his reign and his rule in their heart. And the comfort and peace of knowing that though we live in a world that sometimes appears chaotic and evil, God is sovereign over it. Every detail. And he, he will bring it to an end. He will judge and put down the wicked. And he will save those who have trusted in him. I pray that they would trust you today and know your salvation. God, for those of us that do know you, we have said often as we study these things, it's not intended to fill our head full of knowledge, but to deepen our trust and our reverence towards you. I pray, Lord, just as Daniel, though the knowledge of what is to come might sometimes make us sick, our deep trust in you would cause us to wake up each day and give our lives in faithfulness and in boldness to your word, to Christ, and to his mission so that his kingdom will continue to grow even day, even today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.